The following is a presentation of the Premier Dance Network. Hi everyone, Kimberly Falker here, the founder and CEO of the Premier Dance Network, the only podcast network dedicated solely to the world of dance. And welcome to Pod to Chat with your host, Barry Corellis. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for coming to chat. I am your host, Barry Corollis, and you are listening to Pod a Chat Talking Dance on the Premier Dance Network. In this bi-weekly podcast, I candidly offer educational conversations and thoughtful analysis on all things dance. With my vast background as a director, choreographer, instructor, and dancer, I am happy to share my 19 plus years of experience with you, whether you're a professional dancer or just listening in for an insider's look into our fascinating art form. So put your earbuds in, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's talk dance. Bonjour. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Pas de Chat Talking Dance. I say bonjour because I just found out that my husband is taking me to Paris for my birthday in October. So I'm just a little bit excited about that. But uh, yeah, that's a nice gift, isn't it? (laughs) Anyway... Uh, what is going on in my life? Um, I, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later, but, um, I attended Youth America Grand Prix in Pittsburgh last weekend, say that five times fast, Youth America Grand Prix, um, had a great time. I'm not really going to talk about that much right now because I'm going to be talking about that a lot in today's episode. Um, but other than that, I, (laughs) this is... A great way to start an episode. I've come to the realization that I am really burnt out. Um, <clears throat> it's funny. I've started to say that I'm like a professional burnout. And I'm not saying it like, oh, my God, woe is me. It's just like I, I know the signs and I, I have awareness and I know like how to bring myself out of it. Um, so I, I, I'm working on that. But I just didn't realize that I was like as deep into it as I have been until the past couple of weeks. I think it's because I um, – we had our our fall runs of everything with movement headquarters from our outdoor performances of love letter and then preparing land of the sweets in the midst of a pandemic and then just taking on way too much between that and being rehearsal director for Brooklyn ballet and then teaching at my regular jobs. Um, So I didn't really have time to think about like how I was feeling. I knew how I was feeling, but I didn't have time to think about it. And then I, went away for vacation. So it wasn't like I was working right away. Um, so I went away to vacation to a CDMX in, uh, it's Mexico city to us Americans. Um, and when I came back, it took like a week or so to sort of get in the flow of working. So once I started working, I started to notice that like, it took me forever to get even the simplest tasks done. And there were simple things that I just couldn't bring myself to do. Like, uh, I wanted to apply for the New York foundation for the arts. Uh, choreographer fellowship um that they have and i put it off and i put it off and then when it finally came down to like the deadline i just couldn't bring myself to do it so that's not good so if you ever have feelings like that that like happened on a more consistent basis you're probably burnt out but anyway so what i'm doing now is i'm trying to counteract all of this hard work that i've done that created this burnout and i'm trying to a correct the systems that got me into burnout 
Um, and a lot of those systems are my own personal systems. Um, it's not always like that for other people, but, um, the dance world really rewards people who, uh, work way, 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 way too hard. Um, it's kind of glorified and, uh, I have no problem working hard and I want to work hard, but at the same time, I, I can't work the way that I have been. So I'm working to reduce, uh, those responsibilities so that I can really focus on the things that enrich me. Um, but even more so, I'm doing something that I don't do really often. And I've been leaving extra space in my schedule to hang out with friends, uh, and to allow that extra time it takes for me to do these important work activities. Um, and then if I do have to do something that I don't really want to do, I, I try to leave space afterwards or I try to give myself uh, something rewarding to look forward to after that. So working on it, I'll be fine. Um, it's probably going to take a couple more weeks, hopefully, hopefully not a couple more months for me to come out of it. But um, doing things like going to Youth America Grand Prix were are, are, are things that really fill my cup. So um, that's why I'm going to talk about that in today's episode. But we're not there quite yet. Um, other than that, <clears throat> in, my, in our potty chat regular update at the beginning of every, every episode, um, I am starting to get offers to teach this summer. Um, I'm already looking to head back to Seattle and Houston, which is funny because uh, both of the organizations I'm going to work for are not directly related to uh, Pacific Northwest Ballet. Um, or Houston Ballet. Actually, that's a lie. My friend that I will likely be heading down to uh, in Houston, he and I were apprentices with Houston Ballet. Um, but in Seattle, it's unrelated to the company. So, um, But they're both like two former homes of mine, and I'm, I'm really hoping that I get to uh, visit both of these homes and uh, not only give back to those communities, but also see my friends who still are there. So yeah, I'm currently talking uh, about going to Seattle and Houston in the, in August, but I still have a lot of availability in uh, in July for any summer intensive or choreography work that you may be looking for. So if you're interested in having, uh, I don't know, a week of classes for summer intensive and ballet or contemporary, or if you are a competing school at a competition like Youth America Grand Prix um, or any type of competition, um, I am... I would be more than thrilled to come out and share my uh, my knowledge, my experience, uh, and just join your community for a short period of time. So uh, if you are interested, you can always head over to my Instagram at bcarolis, it's B-K-E-R-O-L-L-I-S, and shoot me a DM, or you can go on Facebook and send me a message on there. So yeah, um, that's what's happening. I'm, I'm giving myself a little bit of space. I'm doing a handful of other activities that fill my cup. Um, I'm starting to set a foundation for movement headquarters in my work that is sustainable and not something that's going to constantly burn me out. Um, And yeah, just working to heal and recover from all of the hard work that (laughs) my work, but also this pandemic has caused. So yeah, there is your update. Um, I, oh, also, I guess I should say this. If you've noticed, like, I haven't kept, like, a v- super, super consistent schedule of podcasting because I think that's also been a part of my burnout. Like, not being able to come up with content as easily as I usually do. So, um, I, I've said this before, like, there have been breaks and pauses in the podcast, but that doesn't mean that I'm not, like, thinking about it and that I'm going to stop doing it. What I'm going to do is I'm pretty much going to, aim to podcast every two weeks. And if it's like every 16 days versus 14 days or every three weeks, that's kind of what it's going to be for now. But, um, who knows? It's, I mean, I think we're approaching, 
I think I'm approaching my, oh my gosh, my six-year anniversary podcasting. That's a long time. That's almost as long as I danced up as I'm Northwest Valley. That's a long time. Okay. I am just talking to talk at this point. So let's get back to talking dance. <laughs> All right. So like I said, I attended Youth America Grand Prix in Pittsburgh last weekend. Um, if you don't know what Youth America Grand Prix is, it is an international youth ballet competition. Um, it's essentially a scholarship scouting competition. Uh you can compete from the age of nine until 19. I think this year they're allowing some students to compete until the age of 20 because a lot of uh, companies haven't been able to hire or function in the same way that they did pre-pandemic. So they've extended uh, the age group one more year so that those who maybe were on the verge of getting a company contract who didn't have access to that because of the pandemic um, still have a platform to be seen and considered for uh, scholarships to continue training or work. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's a youth international ballet competition. It was created in, I think, 1999. Um, and I, I've talked about this in the past, but if you're new to Pata Chat, um, this is why I'm giving you this information. Uh, but yeah, so it started in 1999. I know that because I competed in the very first one when I was 16 years old. I did not make it to the finals because I was not that strong of a dancer. Um, but then I competed the second year of their competition and I did make it to the finals um, where I received a scholarship to the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. It was an unofficial offer. They didn't have as many scholarships uh, in their, in like on their plate back then. <clears throat> but after I competed, uh, the director of Royal Winnipeg Ballet came up to me and offered me a, a full scholarship to the school. So um, I have been a part of this organization in multiple capacities over the years. And then in 2015, around the time that I was uh, trying to recover from my career-ending injury, I started working as a coach and choreographer, uh, not for Youth America Grand Prix, but for a school, for schools and students who were competing. Um, in 2015, I won an Outstanding Choreographer Award. I also had several students uh, placed in the top 12 and one in the top three in contemporary for my choreography. Um, and then ever since then, I have uh, traveled around the country choreographing uh, solos for schools and students. Um, and I've coached several students. I created a contemporary dance program at Greenwich Ballet Academy specifically for the students to compete contemporary solos. Uh, and then uh, in 2020, two weeks before everything shut down, I officially got hired by the organization to work as a judge and master teacher um, for them. And I went into Denver and it was just like a full circle experience. And um, to have like compete at the very first competition, made it through to the finals, like become a teacher, coach, choreographer, and then to have all that uh, hard work recognized um, and being asked to sit on the panel of judges and to teach master classes to these like young, uh, aspiring pre-professionals. It was just, it was really, really special. So, uh, I, I haven't gone to judge for Youth America Grand Prix since 2020. Um, I was supposed to go last season to their Houston semifinals. Um, but there was a major ice storm, um, and they were also we were they were still figuring out what it took to like travel and um, it became too complicated so I ended up not going but this year I got to attend the Pittsburgh semifinals um, and I did that and it was just so fulfilling it helped to recenter me and to remind me why I pushed so hard to do what I do 
Um, and yeah, it was just really amazing. So, um, I'm going to tell, <laughs> like, how organized can I be today? I'm going to tell you a few stories and then, um, we're going to get on to the actual like topic of today's episode, which is, um, what I specifically look for when I'm judging a competition. And I also just judge jazz competitions. Um, so this will be kind of like blanket across the board, um, for what I would look for, but I'm going to speak specifically about Youth America Grand Prix because, um, this is my most recent experience. It's fresh on my mind. And I, I do know that a lot of my, my listeners are, ballet focused. It's pop to chat talking dance. I talk about all things dance, but um, we tend to have a lot more listeners who are are focused on ballet. So um, let me tell you about my exciting weekend uh, <laughs> to go to Pittsburgh. So I was scheduled to go to Pittsburgh on a Thursday morning um, and the competition started Thursday afternoon. Uh, not too far. Pittsburgh, it's like an hour flight here from New York City. I was going to LaGuardia, which is like a 10-minute Uber uh, away from my apartment, so it's not super far. But um, at six o'clock at night on Wednesday, I got a phone call. <laughs> the way I feel about phone calls is like complete and utter panic. Like if anybody calls me without uh, texting me first, I think that something has gone drastically wrong. Um, so I always tell people like, do not call me, text me. If you have to call me, text me first, unless it's an absolute emergency. Um, but so I got a, a phone call from one of our, uh, our regular organizers who I'm, I'm friendly with. Um, and I saw the name and I didn't want to pick it up. I considered not picking it up and like going to voicemail and I panicked. And then I was like, Hey, I need to pick up the phone. Um, so there was supposed to be like a snowstorm the next morning and the airline had like preemptively, uh, canceled my flight the next morning. So the option was to take like a lighter flight and potentially have that canceled or miss the competition um, or to leave at 9 p.m. So it's 6 p.m., flight's at 9 p.m. Um, <laughs> and uh, she asked me if I could do it. And I was like, just give me a couple of minutes to think. I, probably yes, but I just need a moment. So I like got off the phone, texted my husband. I sort of like looked at what I was planning to do. Like I was planning to make a playlist of music to teach because I generally teach contemporary classes for Youth America Grand Prix. Um, so I, I wanted to make like a fresh playlist of music for classes. And then I was going to create some choreography to teach and go over other like repertoire that I was going to teach from movement headquarters. Um, and then I had a couple other odds and ends, um, one being packing. Um, so I was like, I they made the decision I was going to do it. And, I pretty much had like an hour and a half to get everything prepared. I hadn't dyed my hair. I hadn't shaven. Um, and I somehow, Packed, shaved, dyed my hair, uh, went out to uh, like a local pharmacy to grab uh, something that I needed for the trip um, and made it to the airport in time to catch that flight. It was frantic packing people. It was frantic, but it felt like one of those <laughs> one of those like cinematic moments where you're like, I'm getting to do this thing that's like a dream of mine, but there's chaos <laughs> involved in it. But it was like fun chaos. It wasn't... Uh, like worst comes to worst, I miss. I didn't make that flight. They would have put me on the next flight um, that next day, and we would have crossed our fingers. So, um, that was fun. And then I guess the other the other fun story that I want to share with you before I uh, I uh, go on to the meaty details of this podcast is, <clears throat> um, I guess I, I kind of had like I mean, it's so go, co- judging for youth and Grand Prix is um, already a full circle moment, but. Uh, Getting to sit on the judging panel um, each time has been just such a 
rewarding experience for me. Um, I mean, obviously, getting to contribute to the careers of young dancers and to offer feedback and guidance um, is really quite wonderful. Getting to get into the studio uh, and help dancers with uh, moving in a different way than a lot of them are used to is is really nice as well. Um, but for me also, one of the most rewarding parts of getting to judge for Youth America Grand Prix is getting to connect and network with the other judges on the judging panel. Um, and we had a, a great group of, of artists that weekend in Pittsburgh. Um, and I, I'm not going to go through the whole names. You can check my, my Instagram <laughs> if you want to see um, who I judged with. But um, specifically, I'm going to mention um, two people that I was just so excited to, to sit next to. One was Ron Chow Du. Um, he is the former artistic director of the Kirov Academy of Ballet. Um, he was not the director of the Kirov Academy of Ballet when I was at the school because um, he's younger, he's closer to my age. Um, but uh, he took over the school and he recently left. Um, and we connected. He was so kind and nice and he's so smart and educated and really passionate about dance. But like to get to sit next to the former director of the Kirov Academy of Ballet was just really cool because I trained at the Kirov Academy of Ballet. Um, so for me, that was that was very special. Um, and to, to be uh, to feel welcomed and to feel like a peer was also very special because um, even like with my experience in the dance world, um, it's like I'm just me and I still feel like I'm very much working on like up in, in, in the up and coming category. Like I haven't fully realized my potential. Um, and I see somebody who's held a position like that, somebody who has fully realized their potential. Um, and I, it, it was cool just to sit next to him, very inspiring, um, and to get to talk dance and life and all that stuff. Um, and then the other person that, uh, I'm going to mention is, uh, Anna Marie Holmes, who, uh, if you don't know who she is, she is the former artistic director of Boston Ballet. Um, she was the director there right around the time that I started my career. So I definitely knew who she was and had my eye on that company. Um, but also she was responsible for staging Le Corsair on American Ballet Theater. And it's the version that they still do. And when I was like 16, 17, 18 years old, right around that time that I was at the Cure of Academy of Ballet, um, they had put out a DVD of Le Corsair. Um, American Ballet Theater did. And I was obsessed. It's one of the ballets that like truly inspired me to like really push to become a professional dancer. And here I was sitting next to Anna Marie Holmes. Um, and I was fangirling just a little bit um, <laughs> and trying to keep my cool. And she was just so kind and sweet. Um, and yeah, so that that's the whole experience, getting to like connect with the, with the, the dance community at large, getting to contribute to like the education of, uh, young, aspiring pre-professional dancers. Um, and then getting to just, uh, create more of a professional community within, uh, peers that I have great respect for that, uh, teach me more about dance. Um, I feel like I'm constantly teaching about dance, but it's really nice to like, be surrounded by people who uh, have such great knowledge and passion for the field. Um, so yeah. All right. So I gave you my update. I told you a few stories. We're about 20 minutes in. <laughs> and now we're going to actually get to the content. It's almost, I feel like I've clickbaited you, but that's like not even a thing on podcasting. So hopefully 
you're still with me because um, we're about to get to the, the meat of uh, our topic today. So um, the reason that I'm doing this episode, aside from being inspired uh, by what I recently did, was that many competitors have no idea what uh, judges are looking for uh, when it comes to watching a competition. Um Depending on the the format of a competition, I've had competitions where you write, like you give scores and you write comments. I've had competitions where you check boxes, score, and then maybe leave just a couple comments. I've done competitions where you're given a headset and they record you the entire time and you don't really write anything down except for the scores. You just speak all of the the corrections and uh information that you want to convey into those tapes and then those tapes are passed on to the the schools um so even with like even amongst all those formats there's a little bit of there's often either some confusion or uh discrepancies inconsistency um and i i thought that i would clarify at least like coming from me what how i approach um judging a competition and what i'm looking for uh so, yeah, it's – okay, where, where do I want to start? Gather your thoughts, Barry. Gather your thoughts. Okay, so um, let's start here. Um, before I even get into, like, exactly what I'm looking for, something to keep in mind is that, like, in order to judge a competition, you need to see competitors in a specific order. It's not like I can, like, watch all of you at the same time and then I can make decisions based off of that. Um you're given like, this is pretty standard across all competitions. You're given like a range of uh, numbers that you can score dances in. Um, and when you do your first dance, you uh, you write your score in. Um, and then you still have no idea like what the level of the rest of the competition is going to be. It's not like everybody has gone through like a, a screening experience to get judged um, for the most part. Unless you're doing like a pre de Zon or like a, an international ballet competition that's not youth, um, chances are that you can just pay money to register for the competition and compete. So you use that first dancer kind of as like a standard for the rest of your scoring, and then you go from there. Now, I mean, if that dancer is spectacular, spectacular, it's really, really difficult <laughs> um, to tell because you don't know if everybody else is going to be that spectacular or not. Um, but for the most part, you try to score them as fairly as possible. Um, but understanding that there's going to be dancers that are better than them technically um, and artistically and dances that are, are not going to be as strong as them on the other side. Um, so once you set early that first score, everybody that comes after them, um, you kind of shift them up and down um, for like uh, score wise based off of like the standard that you've had. And then that can shift. So say that like a dancer is a bit weaker um, and you maybe score them just a little higher than you would have at the end of the competition. Um, you have to sort of, it's almost like a sliding, what is that called? Grading on a curve? I don't know if that's exactly what I'm trying to say, but you kind of have to go, okay, well, that's the, that's, you have to use that as a first standard and then move all of your scores around based off of that. So I often tell people, like, don't get so tied up in the numbers. Um, in the end, it works out who deserves to be, like, in their placement um, based off of that. But when people get so tied up in the exact number of their score and try to read into it, I think that becomes complicated. So the first thing that I would recommend to schools and 
coaches and teachers is to explain to their students that um, the numbers are numbers for the sake of that, like just so that you have like a, you have a central place to understand where people sort of fall in the line of like, this went really well, this didn't go as well, this needs work, this uh, is right where it needs to be. Um, I uh, I mean, at times I don't even love the idea of scoring. I wish that uh, really you could watch dancers and then you could sort of go, okay, these are the qualities we're looking for and go from there. So it's an imperfect system and it's like that across the board. It's not like, uh, I was actually having this conversation recently um, about like how the Olympics uh, judges like gymnastics and ice skating. Um, and the challenge here is that uh, a lot of the choreography that is being presented, especially if it's not classical choreography, um, it's not like you are given uh, a list of steps that you have to execute. And if you, you like if you're 16 years old and I have to see a triple pirouette, um, and then if you do it perfectly, you get that score and then you lose scores based off of your execution. Um, we don't have standards like that set up. So it, it, it is impossible to have a scoring system that is perfect per se um, like that, where when you do an ice skating routine, you have to have at least for like a men's routine, uh, you have to have at least one quad and you have to have at least like two combinations where you do like a quad uh, toe loop, triple toe loop, or you uh, have to do a combination spin that has at least three positions and this many rotations. The dance world is not like that in a competition. It is uh, more based off of the interpretation and opinion of the judges um, than it is off of a format like that. And then also just keeping in mind that the judges all are coming from different experiences. Um, I mean, I have a broad range of experience having danced for companies like Pacific Northwest Ballet and Houston Ballet um, and even American Ballet Theater for a short period of time and then dancing for smaller companies across the country. But then beyond that, I have a lot of experience in contemporary dance where uh, you might have a judge who has only existed in the classical ballet world. And uh, if they're watching a contemporary piece, they might be looking for more technical aspects where I might be looking for more artistic uh and uh, contemporary aspects. Um, so yeah, it's very subjective um, for each competition and the, the way that scores work, it's, it's more just finding the range of where the dancers are on a scale versus looking at a number and going, if I did not get this number, um, I will, I, it, it's not fair. I, suck I'm horrible like it's not that um I think the only standard that is kind of important at Youth America Grand Prix is that if you have an average score of 96 between your technical score and your artistic score um that automatically qualifies you to enter the finals um the international finals that they hold usually in New York but it's been in Florida the past two years because or last year and this year because of the it's easier to hold events in Florida. Um, not going to get into the politics of that right now. But um, the, the great thing about uh, Youth America Grand Prix is if you don't score 96, um, they do go through the competitors and they make decisions um, about competitors that they think do deserve to move forward to the finals. Um, so yeah, that's like a general rundown of like how I how I personally score. I can't speak for other judges, um, but how I approach it. Um, obviously this is like one of those episodes where you go, 
This podcast has not been endorsed by Youth America Grand Prix or any other competition that I have worked for. Um, but this is just like my general, like trying to be a candid voice in the world of dance um, and sharing this, uh, my experience with you so that when you do get those scores, you're not like, yay, this is amazing or like, this is horrible or I don't understand or like feeling super angry. Um, so yeah, I, I, at Youth America Grand Prix, I tend to judge more of the contemporary um, solos versus the, the classical solos. I also do a lot of the ensembles and that usually also, that usually involves the, the pas de deux category. Um, I can do the classical, um, but just because my expertise is in contemporary, I do that and then I get to either teach or I get a break so that I'm not judging like from 8 a.m. until 9 p.m. at night. Um, so I'm going to share my experience with that. I, with classical, it's, it's, I mean, I'm going to talk about both, I guess, a little bit. Um, with classical, you kind of like have a set expectation of what you're going to see. Um, obviously, it's going to, like you, I'll, in a classical solo, the framework of the solo is generally the same, same but the steps and musicality um, can change based off of the level of technique of the student and the, the choices um, and uh, personal experiences that the coaches have had um, in their own careers and being able to make decisions about like the order of the choreography or like the technical difficulty of the choreography. Um, so you kind of know what you're looking for in the, the classical um, categories, but in contemporary, because it's more like an open solo, um, they're almost always going to be choreographed by somebody, whether it's new choreography or choreography that's being, uh, restaged. Um, so it's, it's a bit different to judge that type of choreography versus a classical solo. Um, but yeah, so, uh, what do I look for when I am judging, um, essentially I have a handful of things. So, uh, technique, um, obviously in a classical competition, technique is going to be one of the most important things, but even in a contemporary solo or duo or pas de deux or ensemble piece, um, it, it needs to be pretty clear that you have control of your technique. Um, Usually this means that you are strong in your classical training um, because in Western dance, technique is usually considered how your ballet influences other styles. Now, granted, it could also be if you only do modern dance that you have like certain control, you have control of certain aspects of your movements. Um, but uh, often it means like classical. So even if your entire piece is super, super contemporary and you have flex feet and sickled feet for, on purpose, um, and you're rolling on the floor, um, and then you have that one moment where you lift your leg up to your ear and point your foot. Um, I always, when I teach uh, contemporary, whether it's choreography or classes, I say, when you have a moment that shows that you're classically trained, you need to show it. So, um, if you do this amazing contemporary solo and then you devil pay and you're a little turned in and your foot sickled, I'm going to know that you're, you're having some technical issues there and that, that could scream a lot to me. Um, so even if you're doing extremely contemporary movement, I need to see that you have the ability to sustain a pirouette that if you do a pirouette that you show, is it fully turned out or is it fully in parallel? If you're on full releve, um, is your heel fully engaged and your knee fully straight and your pelvis aligned? If you're on a demi point, or some people say forced arch in the pirouette, 
Is your heel fully engaged? Is your knee locked so that uh, it doesn't bend more or stretch more and you lose your stability? Um, Or is it on flat and you're just sort of gliding around the floor as your heel slightly lifted? Um, There's many ways to look at your technique, but um, your technique is your essential, like, format that allows you to dance and everything beyond that is you personally uh expressing yourself and showing your movement quality but um it's 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 fascinating how in a contemporary solo um you have those dancers that are super classical that really struggle to move um you you have that a lot and you have those dancers that are really contemporary but they're technical level is not very high um and then every so often you get a dancer who has that spectacular combination of being able to like really adapt to a contemporary of moving um and then uh they also have those moments that they show that they're a technical dancer and that's like where you see the higher scores um because you're it's it's this when you watch a dancer in a professional stage, um, you want to be thrilled, but you don't want to be concerned. Um, if a dancer goes for uh, five pirouettes, you want to be thrilled by, the, by their control in those five pirouettes. Um, you don't want to be like, are they going to get around? Oh, oh my God, they got around. Like, uh, or if a dancer goes for like a double soda bosque, um, when they fly in the air, are you afraid that they're going to fall and hurt themselves? Or do you watch it and are you in wonderment of how amazing they are and how high they jumped and how in control they are? Um, that's really what it comes down to for technique. So that's what I would look for personally um, when judging a dancer's technique. Um, Next, uh, are you performing actual contemporary choreography or just doing a ballet piece to non-traditional music? Um, so again, Youth America Grand Prix, they have their, their, their format is classical solo, contemporary solo. In order to win the Grand Prix, you have to do both. Um, in the regionals, uh, you can only do classical and qualify for the finals. But once you get the finals, you have to compete both a, a classical and contemporary solo. So just do a contemporary solo. Um, then there are also like ensembles. Um, which go everywhere from pas de deux duets all the way up to like large group pieces. Um, but in other jazz competitions, um, there are many, many, many more categories and many, many more styles. But in Youth My Grand Prix, it's classical and contemporary. Um, so being a judge for the contemporary frequently, um, I too often have to write down in the notes for uh for dancers, please explore uh, additional ways of moving or um, please explore more contemporary movements um, because the dancer, what they, 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 they do their classical piece and then they see the contemporary solo not as a way to uh, expand their uh, experience as a dancer and to learn a very important way of moving. Um, instead, they feel like they need to show off how strong their classical technique is again um, in without having the constraints of the requirements of a classical variation. Um, almost always the second a dancer comes out in point shoes, um, I get very concerned in the contemporary round because um, most of the time it's just classical piece on point to, to different music. Um, now, it doesn't mean that you can't do a contemporary solo on point. Um, I am t- 
technically considered often, not technically, but I'm often considered a contemporary ballet choreographer. And a lot of my choreography is on point. Um, it's just that you have to understand what it means to do contemporary on point. It means that you have to be falling off balance. Um, it means that you do need to do things turned in and turned out. It means that you do need to have more extreme positions. Um, and that uh, even though there's obviously going to be classical things, especially with point shoes, um, that you have to be able to like move your torso, like undulate through your spine, um, find strong dynamics um, and be engaging all at the same time. Um, more often than not, <laughs> a contemporary piece should be in ballet slippers, barefoot socks. Um, but yeah, it, it a contemporary piece in so when I choreograph a contemporary piece, and I'm not saying everybody has to do this, but this is what I often do for these types of competitions. Like, I need to show that the dancer has classical technique, so there need to be technical aspects in there. I need to show that the dancer can turn and jump. Um, I need to show that the dancer has extension, um, but also at the same time, I need to show that the dancer can be grounded, that they can do floor work, um, that they can create a flow in their body. Uh, of movement uh, through isolations and flowing through those different isolations. Um, and then I also need to show, uh, I need to give them some type of artistic uh, interpretation. They need to have something that they can interpret, whether it's a story or just an intention. Um, and then I missed one. I need to, you also need to make sure that there are uh, lots of changes in dynamics, fast to slow, sharp to soft, um, smooth to harsh, and all those things in between. Um, so when it comes down to watching contemporary choreography, uh, sometimes you see things that you're just like, wow, that's so incredible. And other times, um, I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna lie. It can be kind of disappointing to see a dancer, uh, and usually it's not the dancer's fault. It's the coach or the choreographer's fault. Um, but to see them just doing, trying to show off their classical skills again and feeling like um, if they're, and I see I, the funny thing is I actually see this usually with some of the stronger dancers where you go, okay, I know you're a great classical dancer, but can you move in a contemporary way? Um, and you never know because they end up doing another technical semi-classical solo. Um, I said this, this not this weekend, but last weekend um, in the master classes I taught to the, the seniors um, while I was in Pittsburgh. And there were like, I'd say like five or 10 years, not 10, I wasn't teaching that contemporary 10 years ago, but like five years ago, um, like students could get away with not really being able to do contemporary and they could still get have a professional career. And then they would uh, learn how to do contemporary as their career went on. But today you cannot really get a job unless you are so spectacular, um, not having contemporary experience. Uh, at least half of the repertoire of most companies um, every year now involves contemporary movement. Um, again, whether it's point shoes, barefoot, flat shoes, or socks. Um, it's a requirement. And um, I mean, when I when I was teaching up in Connecticut, uh, it wasn't required for the students to compete contemporary solos. Um, and then every once in a while, a student would get into the finals and then they would scramble to throw a contemporary solo together. And I honestly thought that that was like the complete opposite of, of what the experience was supposed to be. Um, the idea of competing in a competition like Youth America Grand Prix is not just to like win and qualify. It's to 
get a greater understanding of what it means to be a professional dancer and what types of uh, and expanding the what what it means to be a dancer for you. And if you're treating the contemporary solo like an afterthought that you have to do because you are good enough to make it to the finals, you're 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 not getting the experience. The experience is to explore a different style. And if you're not good at it, who cares? Like you're going to get better the more you do it. Um, so yeah, uh, a contemporary solo should really be about pushing the boundaries of a dancer. It should be an afterthought. And like I was saying before, you're very unlikely to be able to get a job now if you don't treat contemporary movement um, with, I would go as far as saying, as much emphasis as your classical. So 50-50. And I mean, maybe like 40-40 and throw like some other styles of dance. Uh, make sure that you're a fully rounded dancer from Western dance to African dance or classical like folk dancing for different nations. Um, yeah, become like the most diverse dancer you could possibly be and you're going to be that much more marketable. I mean, these days, like before, when I was, when, during my career, if you didn't do the classical ballets, um, like as leads, as a lead, the career was seen as a little bit lesser than like if you, I was considered a contemporary specialist at Pacific Northwest Valley. That's what Peter Bull actually called me. Um, and I felt a little bit lesser than because I was never going to get to do the leads in the classical ballets. But these days, like a lot of the dancers who are getting a lot more attention are the ones who can do uh, classical well, but who are also, who are great at contemporary. Um, so, okay. I talked for a long time about that one. All right. Next thing I look for, um, were you given material that was appropriate for your age? Um, so, I mean, obviously the first thing is, is it age appropriate? Like you shouldn't be dancing sexy. Um, I have seen dancers in lingerie at very young ages. I have seen dancers who have, uh, little shorts on that ride up to their hip bones, like a la Fosse. Um, there will be a time and a place for you to dress that way. And it probably is not when you're 12 years old. Um, so that's the first thing age appropriate, uh, is the content sexual. It probably shouldn't be unless you're like starting to get into that age group where you are going to have a career and you are coming of age to where that would be appropriate. Are you dressed appropriately? Um, beyond that, uh, is the the choreography too technically challenging? Um, I see dancers going for steps that don't really have a grasp of their technique, and they're doing tombe coupe jetés, and they're doing like fouette turns and alcon turns, or uh, big jumps that th- they can barely get their legs out from underneath them. Um, really, truly, you should be making sure that the dancers are are being technically challenged at the level that they're at. I always say to my students when I choreograph a solo. Um, I'm going to make this too hard for you. But then as you get closer, um, whether I continue to coach or whether their coach does, I tell their coach, um, then you start to have a conversation if certain things have not improved enough to put them on stage. Um, you want to challenge dancers, but you don't want to put them on stage and make them look bad. Um, now, on the other side of things, sometimes I see dancers that are really, really talented and the choreography is too simple for them. Um, so it's really kind of finding that sweet spot. Um, I think it's always easier to give more of a challenge at the beginning of the rehearsal process, the choreographic process, and then to give them a chance to rise to the challenge and then having a backup plan for those technical elements that they uh, 
maybe have not quite yet achieved to go on stage. And for you to go, there's a higher probability that they will execute this well. I find that a lot of the times the dancers could perform much better if the teachers and coaches would uh, go, okay, this is this doesn't have to be this way like forever. Um, we have options. Um, and to not feel like you have to utilize those options at the beginning, but to sort of have like deadlines. Like if we don't hit that like all of the contour that pulls into passe while on releve um, into at least a clean double. Excuse me. Um, we'll take that out. We'll just turn it into a pirouette, like a traditional pirouette. Um, so they're decisions. Um, what else? I think that's it. I already talked about costuming. Um, yeah. Was it appropriate for you? So was it appropriate to the category? That was the last one. And now was it appropriate to the dancer? Um, and obviously everybody's going to have their opinions. Um, if there's something like, say a judge says, uh, this costume is not age appropriate. Um, somebody else might think it is. So, um, again, that's why you have multiple judges. If you had one judge, (laughs) that would be an issue. But I mean, I think on all the panels that I did for Youth Maker Grand Prix, we had four. Um, so you get, you get like several different opinions, um, and then they average them together. And obviously the comments cannot be averaged together. The, the scores can, but then you get like an idea of the scores and say that like two of the judges or three of the judges say this is inappropriate or make it harder. It's too difficult. Um, then you might go, okay, I truly believe this. But if only one judge says something, um, like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, like you, a lot of people get upset. Um, think of it more like a consensus. If you have more consistent comments um, across the board, probably true. Um, if you have one or two, it might be something to consider. It doesn't mean that it's like a black or white, like this is exactly what, what it is. Um, also do keep in mind with a lot of the comments, like, um, back like 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was more appropriate to be like, no, this is wrong. Bad technique. Don't do this. Um, it's, it's, we've gotten to a place where we want to be more like positive reinforcement. So the comments generally are lighter, um, not as heavy. Um, so I feel like it's, it's not as easy to read into things I think that they're a little more straightforward. Um, if you do get something that's a bit more intense, maybe something to consider. Um, there was one there was one costume at this competition that I wholly thought was not something sh- somebody should be wearing where we could PC anything these days and you could say it's them like how dare you marginalize or um it's the within like the the opinion of the eye of the beholder like you can obviously look into it you can interpret it your own way um but if you do see something like that it it takes a lot for for us to say something these days because um, we want to make sure that we are not being biased, um, and for that reason, I would say if you do get a strong a stronger comment, like check the costume, um, maybe take into consideration versus feeling defensive. Um, all right, where are we now? Did you engage me as an audience member? That's actually a really important part of it. And that goes a lot into the artistic aspect. Um, I find that dancers these days get so stuck or not even dancers, coaches and teachers get so stuck on, can my dancer get their leg to their ear? Um, Can my dancer do four pirouettes? Uh, How was their turnout? Um, That we forget that 
dance as a performing art. I do understand that it's easier to develop a, a young dancer's technique um, and that artistry tends to come as they get more life experience. Um, even a lot of professional dancers, the first like few years in the company, you see them as amazing technicians and they feel like they should be moved up into leading roles and promoted within the company pretty quickly. Um, and they don't, and then they get upset. A lot of it is because you need to get, you need to give them a couple of years to have life experiences. They need to fall in love. They need to have, uh, they need to have their heart broken. They need to maybe lose control, uh, once or twice. Um, they need to know what it feels like to fail and to make mistakes so that they can bring, um, aspects of, what it is to be human into their art. Um, so uh, it's that, like I said, when you're like with your family and you're not experiencing as much of life, that stuff doesn't happen as much. Um, so it's harder to convey artistry to a student. Um, but even if they don't have those experiences to pull from, it's important to talk about how to develop your artistry. But beyond that, how to like look out to an audience and connect um, like can you look out into the darkness? Uh, it sounded very deep, but it's not. But like when on, on a stage with good lighting, like you can't see past like the, the orchestra or the first or second row of the, the theater, no matter if it's a small theater or a massive multi-balcony theater. Um, how do you project out? You have to imagine that there are people sitting there that you're actually looking at and trying to to like have a conversation with. Like when I talk to somebody, I look at them in their eyes. So you have to imagine that you see somebody sitting there and you're actually like looking at them and expressing to them and then move around and find different pillars throughout the audience. A lot of students, they think they're emoting. They like, they're not showing anything on their face. Are, have you had your dancer go into the mirror, just in the mirror and make facial expressions of themselves so they know how their face is reading? Um, so yeah, you, uh, in order to engage people as an audience member, you have to practice those things. And when a dancer already has that within their, within themselves, um, it draws me in. Um, so even if like the feet aren't doing what exactly what they should be doing or say that technically it was pretty good, but they fell out of a pirouette and maybe, uh, they sickled their foot in something like if you're engaging me with your face, I might not even see it. (laughs) But uh, I'm much more likely to want to watch a dancer who is having a conversation with me, even if they can't see me. Um, And that will definitely help me to elevate a score when it comes to artistry. Um, What else? Do you have a natural X factor? Um, This is something that I didn't understand, but I knew it. Um, and then I was interviewing Septim Weber after he took over Hong Kong Valley when my husband and I went on vacation, um, to the South, to Southeast Asia. I was doing a, a piece for point magazine in like 2018 or 2019. I think it was 2018, 19. I don't know. Um, anyway, I, uh, was interviewing him and I said, what do you look for when you are uh, auditioning dancers? And he said, I look for the X factor. And he, I was like, what do you mean that? And he goes, it's not something I can explain. It's just like something that draws you to somebody. Um, and there's, there's something natural about being a human where certain people just grab your attention and it could be uh, the way they talk. Um, it could be the way that they look. It could be the way that they engage with you. It could be that uh, their technique is so fascinating, but it's like different 
Um, maybe even it's not completely correct, but it's like something that is just fascinating that you've never seen before. Or maybe they can move their body um, to the music in a way that they truly embody the music in a physical way. Um, so there is an X factor with some dancers that they they step on stage and you just can't stop watching them and you have to like remind yourself, oh, I'm, I'm judging, I have to write comments and score. Um, that's something that I can't explain and I can't teach to you. It's just like something that some people have, some people don't. And just because you don't have it doesn't mean that you won't have it. Um, it's just a thing. All right, I got a couple more things. Um, oh, this happens a lot. Uh, students will do more than one piece, whether it's an ensemble or solo. Again, youth grand, grand prix, usually solo. Um, sometimes they'll compete more than one piece to give themselves like a more more experience um, in the studio and on stage, but B um, because it gives them a second opportunity to potentially get that ninety six to get them into uh, into the finals. Um, happens more with classical, less with contemporary because your content your classical piece has to class qualify you into the finals. But um, if you do more than one piece, it's important that you show to me that you have the ability to adapt to different styles of choreography. If you perform several solos and multiple group pieces and the choreography is all like thrashy and fierce with a lot of tricks, um, I'm going to want to see more. I'm going to want to see something else. Like I'd rather, I think it's almost more impactful to see you perform that style once strongly than it is to see you do the same thing over and over and over again. It almost like loses its own. F- I, I, I say this all the time when I'm teaching. If you do like five pirouettes, five pirouettes, five pirouettes, five pirouettes, like five pirouettes becomes less exciting. Um, if you put your leg up to your ear, put your leg up to your ear, put your leg up to the ear, like that becomes less impactful. It's not as impressive. So if you do the same style of choreography, like wonderfully well, five times, um, on, in different pieces, um, you're actually maybe going to end up doing something negative. Um, and that's going to make me wish that I could see you do some perform well in another style. It almost tells me that you found something you're good at, but you may even be unwilling to be uncomfortable and look bad in something because as a director, like auditioning dancers, like I need to see that a dancer has the hunger for growth and that um, if they're not good at something that they can find pathways to become good at something. Um, So I think that that's really valuable. If you do want to perform more than one solo um, or multiple pieces of choreography, um, show me more diversity and don't be afraid to not be as good at one one or two of them. Um, So yeah, I think it's really important that if you are going to compete multiple solos or multiple ensemble pieces, make sure that uh, you're showing a range of abilities versus the same thing over and over again. Now this episode ended up so much longer than I thought it was going to be. I am almost done. We got a few more. Um, oh, this is an important one. Can you tie your technical elements together with smooth and reasonable transitions? I can't tell you how many times I see like high legs, really pointed feet, uh, four pirouettes, um, something really acrobatic, and then it's choppy, 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 choppy. Um, especially in contemporary movement, the transitions are just as important, if not more important, than the technical elements. Um, I, 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 and a, not just the idea that like you need to have transitions between the technical elements, but it's like I don't want to see like five technical elements in a row. Like alasacon, alasacon, pull into a pirouette, step, whack your face, step, whack your face, and big jump. Like I need to see move around the stage, take up space, 
make sure that you understand where the technical element ends and where the transition starts, but where they're connecting. Um, especially with younger dancers, you often see this emphasis on the technical moments, but not in the transition moments. Um, and that's truly what makes it choreography. Um, it's the tying together of the technical elements. Otherwise, I don't feel like dancers are dancing. They're just techniquing. Like I see so much when I teach classes, like I'm always like, and are you planning on dancing today? Um, <laughs> or are you just going to keep on showing me all your tricks? Um, dancing is anybody can dance and a majority of dancing like if you go out to a club or if you have like a kid who's two and hears music they're more doing just transition things they're not doing big flashy things um and if you have your transitions uh and you have a handful of them that are smooth and that don't uh that keep your attention then when you do the technical element the technical element is actually more impactful you can hear a siren going by don't worry it's my new york apartment it's how it always is i'm sure you missed it um all right, here we go. Are you a one-trick pony? I do not want to see the same leg going up over and over again. Great, you've got a great Alisacon extension. It's practically to your ear. Oh, there it is again. Oh, there it is again. This is what I was just saying in the last one. Um, okay, you are a good turner. Great, you did seven turns in your piece, but I didn't really see you dance. Um, it's just really important that you... Uh, you don't rely and fall back upon just having one trick over and over and over again. Um, I talked about that a lot in the last one. So let's talk about the last one. This is another thing that we look towards, especially in these youth competitions. Do you have the physical potential to have a career? Um, now, granted, the idea of what it takes to have, a, like what, what it takes to have a career, it's going to be different in everybody's mind. Um, there are some people that think if you don't dance for uh, San Francisco Ballet or Royal Ballet that you do not have the potential to have a career. Um, and then there are other people that understand that dancing, uh, having a regular job and working for a company that rehearses twice, three times a week in the evening and puts on performances twice a year, um, that that's a job. Um, there is a full range of possibilities to having a dance career. Um, and you can cultivate one that, that works best for you. Um, and sometimes you have an idea that this is the pathway I'm going to take and then you transition over there. But um, what I'm going to look at is do you have the physical potential to have a career? In a classical solo, um, what are you, what's your technique level? What's your artistry? What are your lines? like? Uh, what are your proportions? Different things like that. In contemporary, same thing. Um, do you have an understanding of contemporary movement? Um, if you're going to be an Irish step dancer, I would do the same thing. Um, now, just because I don't think that you have the potential to have a major ballet company career, classical career, doesn't mean that somebody else doesn't believe it's possible or that it is, isn't possible. Um, it's just that our job is to sort of give you reference points. Um, and so if you think about a competition like Youth America Grand Prix, it is a scholarship competition. It is a headhunting competition for schools. Um, there are other aspects to it, obviously. Um, it is an educational experience. It could get you a job. Um, and it, it could uh, tell you, this is the career that I want. This isn't. It could say, I'm willing to work this hard. I'm not willing to work this hard. There's so many different aspects of it um, that I... I can offer or that you can learn through the experience. But um, essentially, th our job is to, to give a, some guidance on to whether uh, you have the potential to have a career. Um, and it, it, like I said, it's not that black and white. Um, I do think that so many more dancers have the potential to have a career if they can figure out the path that is right for them. 
Um, but if you think classical ballet competition, um, that's probably what we're going to be looking for. But a contemporary depart, uh, contemporary category, probably what we're going to be looking for. So we're having all these noises here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, that's like the general gist. And one thing I think is fascinating is sometimes you, uh, have a student come to a competition one year and you would go, they probably don't have the potential to have a career. Um, and then something happens, they have a growth spurt and they get their legs underneath them and they find the right coach. And all of a sudden you go, wow, this dancer does. So if you do not do well in one of these competitions and your scores aren't what you want them to be, the comments aren't what you want them to be. Um, it doesn't mean that this one judgment is the end all say all. Um, it, it just is information. That's what you need to take out of these competitions. Each judge has their own opinion. Um, they have different criteria. Uh, your score might be based off of the fact that the first person was spectacular, um, or maybe they were on the lower level and they got scored a little higher and then everybody else's scores are, are, are based off of that. Um, so don't read too much into these, these things. Use it as experience um, and, or to gain experience. Um, take everything with a grain of salt and just use this information and let that information guide you um, and how you want to continue training, um, where you want to push yourself. Um, do you want to say this is not true? I'm going to go even further than they could have ever imagined um, and then approach it from there. So that, my friends, <laughs> is an hour long podcast. Um, but also that is how I tend to judge competitions um, it's information again, it's my own opinion. Um, and I, I hope that if you, that, that you can take some information from this episode and help you ha- and it helps you have a better experience if you do want to do competitions, because I feel like so many people get caught up in like the numbers and the, the place, excuse me, the placements. Um, but really it's about the experience and the ability to actually continue training. Um, if you, I think it's, I would rather see a student get a scholarship to a school at one of these competitions than I would see want to see them get like first, second or third place or like a grand prix prize. I think that the scholarship is the most important part because this competition isn't about winning. Um, it's really about placing people into careers. Um, and there's nothing more amazing than uh, getting placed into a career because so many people, they, uh, they dance as children and then they stop dancing if they don't have a professional career. And then maybe they get back into open classes and they take here and there. Um, but if you love dance, the best way to continue dancing is to make it your job and your life. Um, so yeah, use these competitions as as information, experience, and pathways. Um, and if you, if you go about them in that way, then I think that you will have a wonderful experience. Um, cause I know personally for me, that was my experience and it really just, it made me want the career even more. Um, the first year, I, like I said, I didn't even make it into the finals. Um, and I pushed harder and showed that I was capable and deserved to be in the finals. And, um, I, now to this day like every day of my life is immersed in dance and i'm just so grateful and lucky that i get to experience that so well that ended on a good note 
That made me feel good. I hope it made you feel good. Okay. Um, see, trying to fill that cup back up. This is something I could talk about. I was afraid that I was going to get on today. And it was going to be 20 minutes and we were going to be done. But here we are. Okay. Let's just call it an end, guys, because this is a long episode. So, um, oh, one last thing. <laughs> just kidding. Um, if you have any topics you want to, to share that you want me to talk about, help me out, people. I need a little help this time. Um, let me know. Um, and I'll explain that in a second. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of How to Chat Talking Dance. If there are any topics you'd like to hear me talk about, please feel free to reach out to me via my website contact page at www.barrycorlis.com. Again, that's www.barrycorlis.com. You can also reach out on there if you'd like to become a sponsor for our podcast or to book master classes in ballet or contemporary technique, choreography, or speaking engagements. Oh, I forgot. You should also check out my company, and you can do that by visiting www.movementhqballet.org. You can also reach out to me on that website. I hope you enjoyed listening in and talking dance with me. If you enjoyed this chat, please feel free to share, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. Every bit of extra visibility helps keep these podcasts running. And if this didn't fulfill your dance fix, check out my sister podcast on the Premier Dance Network. If you want to connect with me to see where I'm choreographing, teaching, and what I'm doing in my everyday life, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, where my name is B. Corollas, uh, or you can go to my company Instagram at movement underscore headquarters, or on Twitter at Bariscos. Also, be sure to check out my blogs. I wrote for five years on Life of a Freelance Dancer about the working as a freelance artist, traveling the country. I also wrote on Dancing Off Stage about the post-performance careers of professional dancers. You can also check out my choreography by visiting YouTube. I have two channels under Beak Rollis and Movement Headquarters. Lots and lots of fun stuff on there. Thanks for listening in to Pata Chats. I hope you return two weeks from this Saturday to talk dance with me. And remember to go out and support your local dance scene.